think we'll go ahead and get started. So we are kind of um, continuing on, um, and maybe just a couple of logistical things. We'll, we'll, we'll spend this morning wrapping up this Romans 2, 4, and 5, and then next week, Mr. Vogel's going to uh, teach for us, which is wonderful, and then I think you'll, you'll see from then on, as we've been talking about this book, you know, Romans 2, 4, and 5 is, is one of those magnet passages. It kind of pulls in everything Paul said from Romans 1, 18 up to Romans 2, 1, actually Romans 1, 32, um, and then continues in what I would call the prosecution of humanity. And what he's going to do from Romans 2, 6 really all the way out through Romans 3.18 is essentially justify that prosecution of every single human being that has ever breathed life. So that's what Paul's doing to help you think as you're reading ahead, and I encourage you to do so. Um, he begins with this narrative description of humanity turned over by God, and that is every generation and, and you know, the we don't have to go into the fact that we just see it rampant around us today, both in the church, outside the church. If you notice some of the, quote, church and Christian activities that were occurring last month even. Um, and then you come to this, but who are you, O oh man, to stop every one of us who was thinking about all these people? Because Paul just says, um, right, it's the old... Timey, you know, if you're pointing your finger at somebody, how many are pointing right back at you, <laughs> right? Three of them at least, right? That's what Paul's doing. And he's saying, who are you who condemns this person for that, and yet you over here are doing the same thing on the continuum of sin, and yet are judging this person, right? So he's, he is casting us right to Romans 3.20, but what he's going to do in between is really justify that condemnation for the religious person, for the Jewish person, and for the kind of pagan person. And it's very interesting how he goes about doing that. We'll begin to unpack that in much larger sections, I think, as we, we get back after Mark's uh, study the week after next. But I, I wanted to just open in an interesting place regarding this passage in Romans 2, 4, and 5. So with 2, 4, and 5 in your mind, let me, let me read that, and I'm going to open with the passage before we pray. Our passage says, Or do you presume, remember that's looked down upon, the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, which just gives us an amazing insight. When we plea, how long, O Lord? Doesn't it? When we say, how long, O Lord? It is because of his kindness, forbearance, and patience meant to lead the lost to 
repentance because they have, Lord willing, church willing, seen the kindness, forbearance, and patience of God in the lives of those around us, in our own lives. And when you're looking in the face of the most vile person you could possibly ever imagine, this is true of them too. His kindness and forbearance and patience can be easily brought out into their conscience if we're faithful enough to do that, right? But then you have the human responsibility side. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are, and these are some of the words we're really storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, right? So God is doing everything necessary so that we are without excuse to bring people to him because of the kindness, forbearance, and patience that he shows to every human being, every human being, no matter what their condition is. But what, what a way to rethink the way we reach into the lives of people, right? What a wonderful way. Now, go to John 3.16 with me for a minute in light of this passage. And think about the context of this passage that John gives us because he's just spoken to Nicodemus. And in my life, the best way I think of Nicodemus, he is the Pope of Judaism in many ways. He was the teacher of teachers. He was the highest order. He was, he was at the very highest of all of the highest within this system of Judaism. And Jesus told Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God from where you are. That's what's going on here. And we go on to hear this glorious passage, arguably the most quoted verse in all of the history of the New Testament church. For God, so here it is, love the world. You want to explain that to people? Take them to Romans 2, 4. For God so loved the world. And bear in mind, this is the same world that in John 17, 9, Jesus won't even pray for. How, how do you sort that out in your mind? Right? We should think about those things, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And you can see the first half of Romans 2, 4 right there, right? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Talk about kindness, forbearance, and patience. Because he brought his son into the world that in his divine decrees, they, the triune God, knew was going to kill him in the most horrible way man knew how to kill a human being at that time. Talk about kindness, forbearance, and patience. To condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There's the second half of Romans 2.4. Now, rarely does the quoting of this verse ever get to verse 18. 
There's a reason. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And you can take your mind straight to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Because that believing is the gift from God. The antecedent of our believing is God's gift of faith. Now think about that, because this is really important. The antecedent of our belief is God's gift of faith. Let me say it this way. Who is the first cause of our love for him? He is the love with which he loved us. Please register that hard in your mind. Fix it in your mind. Because John says it this way. But whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already. So important. What is condemned already? Condemned already is the pre-existing condition of the person who will come to believe because of the work God has done. Now, with that thought in mind, imagine if God were not kind and forbearing and patient. Or, or even more, going to the extreme to make the point. Imagine if God had not chosen to save. Or more specifically, imagine if God had not chosen to save some and not all. And that's the part where most people get a little allergic to the truths of Scripture. But what you fail to realize, what we fail to realize, that the triune God would have been perfectly comfortable in their solitariness. They did not need us. They don't need us. They don't need heaven filled with souls who will give glory to Christ into eternity. They did not need that. It was their choice. And therefore, they created, we fell, and they saved, right? Verse 19, and this is the judgment. So here comes Romans 2, 5. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, because of your love for evil, your love for sin, right? God is constantly, and John is particularly good at this, showing us the, the two sides of the same coin, God's divine intervention and man's responsibility. They go hand in hand in God's divine ways, right? For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So what John's showing us is the human experience of salvation. Apart from this divine work of God, we would simply continue to love evil, and hate God. And yet in his divine intervention, all of a sudden, we abhor evil like God and love God. 
That's the human experience. But what we realize is underneath all of that is this blessed, precious, divine work of God bringing that heart to life, that dead heart, right? Let's just pray for a minute. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your blessed truths. We thank you for the way they just shake at times the way we tend to think so that we can know you so that we can commune with you, so that we can know the blessed work of our Lord and our Savior, your beloved Son, so we can know the means by which you have brought that about and the miracle that you've done in every soul that loves you by first pouring your love into them through your Son. This is the treasure that Paul could not ever get over, and I would just pray that every one of us in this room and in the body of Christ could be the same, that we would just never be able to get over the magnitude of your kindness, of your forbearance, and of your patience with each and every one of us. And we just praise you for that, Lord. And we praise you in your precious name our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So to this morning, we're going we're gonna to work through really this idea of storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And I want to just define for you, there's a number of places you can go to kind of grab uh, a, a definitional view of the day of wrath. But wrath in particular is the personal manifestation of God's holy and moral character in judgment against sin. You will never see your sin rightly. I will never see my sin rightly. And therefore, I will never see this kindness, forbearance, and patience if I don't pour myself into the holiness of God revealed through scriptures. And the more holy that God reveals himself to be because he is, the more sinful you're going to see yourself. That is the tension of the Christian life, which is ride a constant life of repentance is so important. And don't think of repentance only as the sin that I've identified in my life. It is certainly that. But repentance is the change in the way we think about God as we, He reveals His holiness to us, which helps us better understand from where we have come and where we're going. And in their divine work, we're already there as fuel to be more and more conformed to Christ the sanctification of the saint. It is all pulled along by a proper view of the holiness of God, which will give you a very proper view of yourself, which will let you say to Romans 2, 1, 2, and 3, who are you, O man? Amen. 
who in the world have I somehow managed to think I am? And boy, doesn't it just pervade our life? I mean, I, I can stand here before my brothers and sisters and look back in my life and see how many times I have been exactly that man. And that is a time to thank God and repent. Right? Wrath is neither an impersonal process nor irrational and fitful like anger. That's the steadied wrath. It's steadied with God, right? It is in no way vindictive or malicious. It is holy indignation. The object is not on it. The object is on the holiness of God and his response to it, sin, which is a settled wrath. God's anger directed against sin. God's wrath is an expression. Now, this really made me stop and ponder. These old dead guys just mind so much beautiful truth. God's wrath is an expression of his holy love. Now think about that for a minute. We might not get out of this this morning, right? Think about that. How is God's wrath an expression of his holy love? Any thoughts? How is God's wrath an expression of his holy love? Mm-hmm. Beautiful picture. Yeah. And to not correct a child is spoil a child, to hate the child, to let him grow up to be an absolutely unrestrained adult. Dr. Spock, sorry. Look at the fruit. Yes. And we, we kind of bristle at that, don't we? Because we can't love ourselves rightly. God does. How else? How else is his wrath an expression of his holy love? Look around you. Not look around. Look how many ways God is revealing his wrath. And Jeff and I were talking this morning on the way in. This wrath is a generational wrath. This is every generation of humanity. Generation after generation, count them, right? Every generation, God has been kind, forbearing, and patient. And yet he has been pouring out his wrath. How is the pouring out of that, let me say, temporal wrath, an expression of his holy love? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which side of the cross you're on? Okay.
That's right. Lead to is the key I want to key off of. Because what does Romans 2, 4 say? Read it. Yes. Think about that for a minute. All the wrath we see in society today, and Lord, do we see it, has one. This is how God can say, right? For it's his desire for all to come to the knowledge and be saved. The wrath that we see all around us, the ever-increasing wrath, is an expression of God's love manifested in the horror of temporal wrath so that everybody can see it plain as day. Because of their hard and impenitent heart. Right. Right. Yep. And it is through, this is what I want you to see. It is, because this helps me a lot with the evangelism. I sat with a man for two and a half hours this week with his brother, and this man is just vile. His 16-year-old son is somewhere down in Atlanta because he wanted to kill himself because of the mess his parents have created. And he's more worried about figuring out a way to get the child support removed than he is concerned for his son. That's just one sliver of how we are creating a generation after a generation of people who are just absolutely hardened. You show them the kindness and the patience and the forbearance of God, and you show them in light of the wrath and you explain to them that all of this is meant to bring you to a right thinking of God because he is kind and forbearing and patient, right? The other thing is his temporal wrath, as horrific as it is, as destructive as it is, as we all see very, and even the unbeliever sees, right, plainly, they just don't call it wrath. It's almost become normal, isn't it? It's almost become normal. Pales in comparison to the wrath that's being stored up for the day of judgment that will last for eternity. And that's the bedrock truth we have to get our evangelism to so that we can help them understand that the very expression of the wrath in their lives is the kindness and forbearance and patience of a holy God who is meant to bring them to repentance so that they don't have to experience eternal damnation. Which, by the way, is, is every sinful person taking every sinful desire they have and turning them loose with no restraints whatsoever. Can you imagine how horrific that's going to be? That's why we see at the end time, in that tribulation period, the restraints are let go. It's, it is the most dramatic picture of eternal condemnation the world will ever see. That's what it is. See how all that snaps? But it takes us right back to the whole reason for the release of that wrath and how visual it is and how horrendous it is is meant to lead us to repentance.
Look at um, Romans 5.9 with me for a minute. And we'll start cooking through a few things here. But Romans 5.9 I found just so wonderfully helpful because the culmination of all his goodness, forbearance, and patience towards his elect is fully justified when we see this Romans 5.9 and what Paul impacts all the way through Romans 3.21 on. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Begs to the pre-existing condition of condemned already, right? I love that much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's part of the much more that Paul talks about, right? And then he goes right into the peace that we have. He's just come out of Romans 5, 1, which is the peace we have. He strings it right over to Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. I don't know when you came to know the Lord. I do know you came through the suffocating reality of your sinful life because that's what the Holy Spirit does. And I know there is nothing in the scriptures more treasured at that point in time than Romans 8. There is therefore, because of everything Christ has done, now no condemnation. You have come out from under condemnation, right? I want to just take another Pauline view of this because I think it just unpacks the idea that we've just talked about so well. And we, we could possibly not get any further than this section and be perfectly good. I want to key off of because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. By taking you to Ephesians 2.1, and we're just going to walk through 2.1 through verse 10, and we're going to kind of break it up into a few sections that I think you'll see progressing in Paul's mind as the Spirit is moving him along to write this. Verse 1 reveals that condemnation of Romans 3. I'm sorry, John 3, 19. It's right here. Look what it says. And you, just see the finger pointing at each one of us, were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, still rampant, still going on, still the wrath of God. You were one of them. That's Paul's undeniable message. Right? Now, not to, but how horribly is that rejected today? especially within the church. This is some other group of people. I was raised in a Christian home. I was a good kid. I was this, I was that. I would, I'd, I'd, right? This, this is not me. That should be fearful. That is a direct rejection of the, not only the very word of God, but the very word of God that reveals exactly where every one of us stand 
apart from this regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And Gloria and I were talking about this on the way down this morning. Most people don't realize that, that Disney has been a community that is now exalted for 40 years. It's been a haven for that community. They literally take this passage and they flip it right on its head, don't they? That you are everything. You are good. You are, you are, you are the opposite of this. And then they pour it into who? We don't stand a chance if we're turning them over to Disney to get their doctrine of man from. It flips it right on his head, and it is not an accident. Trust me. It's just one example. And these kids absorb it like you just can't believe. God says this. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, this is why Jesus can very comfortably say in John 8, you are of your father, the who? The devil. Most people bristle at that. That was never me. That could never be me. That was every one of us, right? And if you don't start here, I, I don't think we'll ever see the holiness of God in a way that motivates our worship like it should, right? And if there was a doctrine in the church that is most attacked, most rejected, I would offer it is the doctrine of man. That's not me, right? Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like who? rest of mankind. That's why Paul gets us to Romans 3.20 and says, shut your mouth. You, oh man, you shut your mouth. Right? That's what he's doing. Here comes the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Look at verse 4. Whenever it says, but God, just, just boy, just open your heart wide open because here it comes. Here, here it comes, Right? I love the way Paul does this in his entire corpus. But God being, here it is, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly Places at that very moment of your salvation in God's eternal view, you are already there, sister. You're already there. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Particularly on those days where you just barely get through them. You're already there, brother. And sin and death are gone.
Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, there it goes, right? He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And our wonderful, pure, righteous, and just God will be able to say without a shadow of a doubt that every person in eternal damnation is there because they chose to be there. Because they chose to reject the most beautiful expression of the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God, his beloved son. And the countless revelations that he's made as he reveals that in Romans 1. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, right? And to what end? For the one who, through God's election, receives this antecedent gift of repentance, this greatest gift short of our Lord himself from God. Verse 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. How could you get that wrong? How could you steal away from the glory of God when you read that passage? I can't tell you how many Roman Catholic priests I sit down with this passage, particularly as I was coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, and said, you square this with your Catholic doctrine, please. The people that come to your door with all of their little pamphlets who want to teach you a different doctrine, you ask them, from where does your righteousness come from? They sure won't go here. They can't go to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. They can't go to Philippians 3, 9. Because their righteousness comes from their good works. When Paul makes abundantly clear it is the pure gift of God that starts the works that God accepts versus those he rejects as filthy rags. These on this side of the cross, the unsaved side, are filthy rags because you're trying to earn your salvation by saying, no thank you, Christ. On this side, you recognize what Christ has done on your behalf through all of this, and all you want to do is thank and praise Christ and God for providing a way, and we want to do everything we can to honor his namesake in our walks of sanctification. Let the Holy Spirit have his way with us, right? That's the plea. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Go to Romans 3.20. Shut your mouth. What boasting do you have? You were dead in your trespasses, dominated by Satan, destined for the wrath of God, and God literally brought you back to life, and now you're going to boast of what you've done, which is to do what? To steal the glory of God in order to exalt yourself. That ought to just be like nails on a chalkboard. Because I'm sure it is in heaven. And here comes verse 10. 
Here comes the other side of the cross, James, that you were talking about. For we are now his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. When you walk headlong into the most vile person at a moment where they are broken, you are walking right into Ephesians 2.10. And, and let me just put a little exclamation on that. God's testing us at that very moment, isn't he? He's testing us. And I think we can all honestly say we have failed that test miserably. And boy, do we see the kindness, forbearance, and patience of God all the more. Because he's sanctifying us. We are being sanctified, says the scriptures. We are serious works in progress, but the destination is not unknown. It's already there in the life of the believer. Yes. Wonderful question. So I can give you how I, I'm working through it. It's a conversation we could all have for a long time, but it, it's very providential. I, I, um, it's become very sweet fellowship now every other Saturday with the man that we counseled him and his wife through just an absolute marriage-shattering event in their life. And uh, he and I have just become the dearest of brothers and friends and a few weeks ago, we were talking about this very subject. And in Gurnall's devotional a couple of weeks ago, he talks about, don't ever confuse your work with God's work. That helped me a lot with the very question you're asking. Because if I'm, we are so outcome-oriented, if I can't walk up to somebody and say, boy, you are a sinner, you need to repent, you need to get right with the Lord. And if I don't see that outcome, like, right away, I'm like, oof. Don't ever confuse our work with God's work. What are we to be doing? Sharing this gracious God, the seeds, praying for that individual, that encounter, that Ephesians 2.10 moment, and trusting that God may be... <laughs> 50 years down the road when that person is coming to the end of their life before any of that gets the increase from God. 
right? So there's a part of that, James, where we have to realize that many of these deep, deep truths are spiritually discerned, right? And you have to meet, and this is the classroom I'm sitting in right now, Tina and I talk, we have to meet people where they are. I have a number of people, some of which I love dearly, who hate God, not because the God they know or don't know, but much more so because of all the people that claim and often do know that God and the way they present that God. God presents himself as kind, forbearing, and patience. There's a wonderful place to start with how do you meet that person and appeal to their heart and hope that God is working in that heart. Because at most of the points, that heart is hard and impenitent. But in the case of everyone of us who know the Lord, at some point, that heart became new. And that interaction with the next Christian will be very different, right? Yes, it's divinely understood. Right. And they knew it. They were worried about it. They were actually waiting for Joseph to unleash his power on them, wasn't he? Weren't they? Yes. And Joseph and his brothers are a great example of what we're talking about. How did Joseph endear his family back? I gave the answer away. What did he do? He loved them after all they had done to him and how it literally destroyed his entire life. Literally. He loved them. Exactly. Exactly. Which is the divine gift we've been given. Ephesians 2.10, and should be very mindful and constantly mindful of being good stewards of that gift, right? Is. When you hear Jesus say, because you refuse to come to me, that you just that's right out of the mouth of our Lord. That's the perfect example. You refuse to come to God. Why? Do you not see his wrath in your life? Right? And like the Gadarene, I love the Gadarene, because what did Jesus say to him when he was sitting, clothed, and in his right mind? 
He had no MDiv. He had no tablet with 3,000 books on it. He had one encounter with Christ. And he was lifted out of a life filled with domination of demons, living a perverted, broken, sinful, scary, cutting himself, howling at the night, living amongst the dead in the tombs life to boom, sitting and clothed in his right mind. And he just, you can almost see him. He just wanted to hold on to the Lord if you read that encounter at the end. I want to go with you wherever you go. You are not getting away from me, right? And what did Jesus tell him? Go into your land and tell everybody everything I have done for you. That kindness and forbearance and patience. There's a pretty good place to start. There's one of your first evangelists in the New Testament, depending on how you count the cross. He told a demon-possessed man, saved by the grace of God, to go, and they did. If you follow that through a couple of chapters, you will see that when Jesus returned to that region, they came to him in droves. We many attribute it to the ministry of that man. Right. He'll just leave you be. That's the thing. God has to exert no energy on our fallen nature. He just has to, right? It's his act of intervention, right? And that's, that's the point. That's why every one of us should be on our face all the time, thanking God, because otherwise we would continue to be just like one of them. So here's a beautiful place to end. We got through one of three pages, which I fully expected. Listen to this passage from Peter. Now think about Peter first, right? Get behind me, Satan, right? Satan has demanded that you be sifted as wheat, and he was, and he did fail because he was tested and found, what? Wanting, right? Here's our sweet Peter many, many years later in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4, as he's staring right at the death the Lord spoke to him on that beach. It says in verse 3 of 2 Peter 1, his divine power, Jeff, here it comes, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You can't even live a life meaningful and godly apart from his divine work.
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So we are called, we come, and we begin this immersion into the word of God if we are being rightly taught and pursuing and seeking the word of God. You see how central the word of God is to your sanctification? Verse 4. By which he, again, you think Peter's trying to make a point here, has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers, James, of the divine nature. And there it is. There is the only way you're going to understand these deep things of God that come at you from the Word of God. It is through that divine nature, that renewed nature, that new heart, and the Spirit of God dwelling in here and our commitment to seeking the knowledge of God through the Scriptures, which is why the warnings that were in the other two pages about being loose and fast with the Scriptures in this office and the effect it has on everyone listening is one that ought to put the fear of the Lord deep into everybody who stands up in this pulpit, right? Because this is the very means by which we reveal the God of the Bible and we are then sanctified. And Peter understood that. By which he has granted to us precious and very great promise so that through them they may become partakers of the divine nature. And here, here it comes. Here's where we were in this temporal wrath of God that was meant to lead us to repentance. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's where we're stuck, apart from this intervening work of God. Right. So, all right, that's our study for this morning. And we'll enjoy Mr. Fogel next week. Thank you, guys.